They're speakers, authors, and real-life rock stars, bringing you life-changing thoughts that rock. Taking conversation all the way to 11. Most shows only go to 10. Well, it's one louder, isn't it? These go to 11. To 11. This is Thoughts That Rock. Now, here are your hosts, Jim Knight and Grant Menzoir. With all the colors of the wind. Oh, I think I the paint. The paint. With all the colors of the wind. You used all the colors. All of them. I heard every swish. I had very fast brush strokes. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Sound on like Thoughts nunchucks. That rock. It is the podcast. That is about exchanging pieces of life-changing advice. Yep. We try and do that in about a half an hour, but we wind up around 45 mm-hmm. minutes. This episode is sponsored by Bookie Call. It is the uh, book discovery platform that we created. Everybody knows it. Everybody's doing Everybody it. Everybody knows it. Everybody's doing it. They're downloading it for free because it's free. It doesn't cost anything. Nope. That's what that means. It's amazing. And uh, we match people with books. Uh, so get off of Tinder and get on to Bookie Call and uh, you know, be safer. Yeah, because people suck. Date a book. Yeah, that's what I say. But do Listen, if you do like this show... Mm. Just take a second and Maybe. just give us a review. That would be mm-hmm. awesome for us. Five-star rating would be appreciated. Yep. A little written uh, review. You know, you can put any words on there. Maybe one word, as Brant likes to say. We'll take it because all or of that helps. Greatest podcast ever. Ever. And you could spell it E-V-A-H with an exclamation point if you ever. want to. Just to make a point. And listen. It's big for us because people, you know, they, they take a look at the show, they wind up liking it, they download it, we make a little bit of money off the show thing. Show growth. We're able to show growth. We're able to give a little bit more money to uh, some people in need. That's right. Thoughts That Rock supports Cannonball Kids Cancer. That's who I was talking uh, about. That's right. And their fight for finding and funding treatment options for kids who've run out of options. Mm-hmm. We think they're amazing. We know you will, too. You can check out how to get involved at cannonballkidscancer.org. Do us a favor. Check that out. I, I Honestly, I think you would you would dig trying to help out that group. Yep. Listen, we know how busy you are. And Super grabbing some busy. time to step away yep. and just amp up your life. We get it. Mm-hmm. Like, we're in the same boat. Yep. We're super busy super busy but listen we go out of our way <clears throat> to make sure that we listen to the show every week we try to and mostly because we have to from a quality assurance well shh, don't give away our secrets Sorry. but listen we understand you're doing two things at once right you're listening right. to the show yep but you could be doing something else yep like you could be unpacking groceries from kroger where's the lettuce maybe you're slathering up crisco on a flagpole what? Maybe you're sharing Skittles with a stranger. <laughs> Open your mouth. Does it really matter to us? We just want to be the half hour you've been looking for. <laughs> Our guest today is Lee Wind, the Director of Education and Book Marketing Programs for the Independent Book Publishers Association who we know through our company, Bookie Call, yep. and have a great relationship with. Definitely. First and foremost, Lee, welcome to Thoughts That Rock. 
Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Um, we're going to have fun. Yeah, you know, absolutely. In in all honesty, we just had a complete system crash malfunction. <laughs> and so welcome to uh, the real world of Thoughts That Rock, how things work around here with uh, duct tape and tinfoil studios. This is what happens. But um, incredibly excited that Lee is here with us. Uh, we're going to have his full bio posted in the show notes, but um, just a few really cool highlights we'd like to point out. Um Lee obviously loves empowering indie publishers to have their voices heard. He is a celebrated author himself. He actually crowdfunded one of his young adult novels, uh, Queer as a $5 Bill, celebrated by Publishers Weekly as an indie success story. Mm -hmm. He has two books published uh, by uh, IBPA member presses, uh, two different indie presses, Uh, No Way They Were Gay, Hidden Lives and Secret Loves, which is a nonfiction Chicago public library best of the best books winner and if that wasn't enough it's also a junior library guild gold standard selection and then uh, another book red and green and blue and white which is a picture book which received five star trade reviews was called beautiful by the new york times and uh, was honored as a sydney taylor award notable picture book and and you know jim i i have to laugh just because uh this is just incredible. Like, I mean, so many different awards, so many different things happening. We also happen to be authors, but um, outside of of mom's gold stamp of approval and a sticker that maybe we got, we got no awards. We got no. We awards. got none of what Lee just received. Yes, Lee, we have sold tens of dozens of books <laughs> between the two of us, and we, we are a hundred heirs. <laughs> I will just say that we are. We were we were joking before we even started recording that uh, Lee, our books, we are we, we both have both of our books in uh, to to each in our Bookie Call app, and uh, they're the lowest selling books, I think, yeah. because we're uh, nonfiction authors, and apparently our awesome young adult audience does not care at all about <laughs> about right. nonfiction. So good on you! I think if you had your books and uh, a lot of other people that you know, they would probably be swiping right, left, and well, right, it'd be left, and right. It'd be we only are, right. We're working on glittery vampire novels as as we speak. Yes. To, uh, to sort of catch up on the yes. swipes. Badminton and hockey romance is what we're <laughs> we're working on next. Badminton romance. Come on. We could clean that, up in that that's category. Gr- Lee, is that not a great title for a book? Bad Mitten Romance? <laughs> Bad Smitten. <laughs> I'm seeing like a graphic novel with like cat people. I don't know. <laughs> right. I see on the cover, it's like two of the badminton things across, you know? Yes. We just created our own genre. That's yes. it. Young adult. To heck with hockey romance. Badminton romance is where it's at. We uh, do things a little bit differently around here, Lee, as you you can see. We'd like to jump straight to that juicy piece of advice. So what is your thought that rocks? Thoughts that rock, number one. The the messenger matters, which means that our story matters. Hmm. And I came to that because I was a communications major in college and we learned that famous Marshall McLuhan line about like the medium is the message. And I was like, yeah, okay. That's sort of interesting. Um, but even in college, I mean, from I, I'm gay and I didn't come out until I was 25. So from age 11 to 25, I was actively hiding who I was and I was dating girls and I kept sort of judging that it was the right thing to do and wondering would the feeling ever come like, you know, like from the, all those songs about like what it meant to feel like you were in love and I totally didn't feel it. 
Um, and then I finally got honest um, and came out. And then about 10 years after that, I went to a, a talk and this man was talking about the letters that Abraham Lincoln wrote Joshua Fry Speed that convinced him that Abraham was in love with Joshua. Hmm. And that just like blew my mind. And I was like, how could that possibly be true? I mean, I grew up and I, I was born in America. My parents were immigrants, but I was born here. I went to school here my whole career. I went to an Ivy League college. I mean, come on, how is this possible that I've never even heard this? But I just couldn't get it out of my mind. So I went to the library and I got a book that had an, an appendix uh, that had all the letters between, uh, well, basically very few of the letters that Joshua wrote survived, but we have a bunch of the letters that Abraham wrote Joshua. And they had lived together for four years. And then um, Joshua moved back to Kentucky and married this woman named Fanny. And eight months after that wedding, um, Abraham wrote him a letter and said, are you now in judgment? Uh, sorry, are you now in feeling as well as judgment? Glad that you're married as you are. For anybody but me, this would be an impudent question not to be tolerated, but I know you'll tolerate it for me. Please tell me quickly, I feel very impatient to know. So we don't have the answer, but it was less than a month later that Abraham married Mary Todd. And when I read that, are you now in feeling as well as judgment, glad that you're married as you are, I got goosebumps because mm -hmm. that was exactly how I felt. And in that moment, I had this like reflection of myself in history. I mean, like not that I'm Abraham Lincoln, but like something about this amazing man, yeah. like actually resonated with who I was and how I felt. And I was like, wow, well, maybe Abraham was in love with Joshua. And then that kind of was like, I, I, again, like I'm even getting goosebumps saying yeah. it now because it's just like the idea that this guy like on Mount Rushmore on the $5 bill on the penny yeah. could be this guy who loved another guy in history. Yeah. Um, you know, when I grew up, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have yeah. all these, you know, all these people in, in, in the limelight that were queer and, what it meant was that I just felt incredibly isolated and incredibly alone. And I thought that I was the only guy that liked like other guys. And that was super, super difficult. So like, then I started to think about like, you know, the sanitization of history, like, well, who gets to tell the story and, mm -hmm. and how do we, like, what's their agenda? Because clearly like, these aren't new letters. Like these letters were, you know, from the 1850s and stuff. And, and, and I was just, I just started to do more and more research. And then I got kind of like, well, that would be a cool novel. So that was actually- Or a cool movie. Novel. Where's that right. movie? Can you right. imagine somebody putting out something like that now? That would blow people's Well, I thought minds. that like, if you could, if I could, like, I don't have a time machine, right? To go back and tell myself. So yeah. I thought, well, I'm a writer. Let me write a book about a kid today, kind of my proxy, right? Like yep. a yeah. kid growing up in a small homophobic town that discovers this letter, has the same goosebump moment I did. and decides he's gonna out Abraham Lincoln and change the world because everybody loves Lincoln. Um, and of course it just blows up a big conservative firestorm. Yeah. So as I was writing that novel, I just got so much more evidence that, that supported that Lincoln was in love with Joshua. And then beyond that, I just started to collect all these other stories like Mahatma Gandhi, that the love of his life wasn't his wife, Kasturba, but it was this German Jewish architect named Herman Kallenbach. Yeah. And Eleanor Roosevelt, that the love, you know, she was married to FDR, but and, and had kids with him, but but she was in love with Lorena Hickok and had this, yeah. you know, decades long romance with her. And then I was um, learning about Wewa, who was, you know, a member of the Zuni nation and was sort of celebrated as a princess of, of, of you know, from from uh, native culture, and yet was a third gender person. And when it was found out that that Wewa didn't have a, a female body, 
um, was sort of, it was this scandal in Washington, D.C., um, even though Weiwa had been this sort of ambassador for their people. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that there was so much there about, you know, the the false facade of history as we teach it in our country, mm-hmm. that like the only important people in history were straight, white, rich, cisgender men from Europe. Mm-hmm. And there, it, it kind of excludes all the stories of women and people of color and mm-hmm you know, men who love men and women who love women and people who loved without regard to gender and people who lived outside gender boundaries. And I thought, well, that's, I mean, when I learned history in school, it was taught very dry. It was very much like dates and names to memorize. But I thought, wow, a book that sort of dismantles that false facade of history, that actually sounds kind of interesting. Like even I would want to read that. So that became the nonfiction book, No Way They Were Gay. Mm. Um, And what I was trying to do and what I always try to do is, is, bring forward the voices of the people from history and Mm -hmm. really use the primary sources because I feel like, you know, and be really transparent about like, what's me and what's my interpretation and what's the voices from history. Because so much of this, what's happened with the hundreds of years of historians is that um, they're changing the facts on the ground, right? Like they're, they're changing the pronouns. So like Shakespeare is a great example. He wrote 120 some sonnets to another guy, love sonnets. But when they were published, they changed all the pronouns. So for 150 years, the version of the world that Shakespeare, uh, of, the, of those uh, sonnets um, were, cha- were altered, yeah. uh, you know, away from what th- they were intended. And never um, knew that. And, and it just, like, I just kept finding more and more of these things. And it got me to think about like how it's not just the message. It, it's not just, the, it's not just, sorry. It's not just the message. It's not just the medium. It's right. who is, who is filtering this information for you? Yeah. Because if they have an agenda, they can completely skew the, the facts and they can shift our perceptions of who belongs yeah. at the table today. Right. Because that's what history is. History is like, you know, if you know that you have, have a place in history, I think you feel more secure and you have a place at the table today. And yeah. if you know you have a place at the table today, I think you can imagine a, a future with no limits Right. But if you if you don't have any history, if, if that's sort of taken from you, then you're sort of rudderless yeah. and you don't have any foundation, you know, to, to, to build on. So I kind of feel like I mean, I can't do it all. I can't, you know, but but I'm queer and I, I really I got so excited about this history stuff. And then it made me realize that this is connected to publishing today. Hmm. Right. Right now we have four. Uh, well five, but it's about to be four major corporations that decide everything that gets published in the US. And there are a lot of really well-intentioned people at those companies, uh, but at the same time, they have a very singular motive. And, you know, that is the sort of, you know, nothing against money, but that is really like to make money and to deliver to their shareholders. And that is a very different philosophy about who gets access to publishing. And, you know, there've definitely been things happening, especially in children's publishing about trying to, you know, diversify. And, you know, there was own voices for a while, which was really trying to say, Hey, if you're going to write a story about disability, you know, let's, let's shout out that you are a person with that same disability. Um, And yet then it ended up being sort of a marketing cudgel that was used against authors because, you know, if they didn't match up precisely with every character, 
then it was used against them. So mm-hmm. we've sort of dropped that. But I think that that's why I'm so excited about sort of my dual careers, because in my day job, we're really trying to empower indie publishers. And a lot of those indie publishers are not driven solely by the idea of profit. They're really driven by the idea of a mission. Right. And they want to give access, give voice to the people that necessarily haven't necessarily had a chance to have their voices heard. And I actually think that if we think in the, in the broader sense about like publishing in general, the idea that only four corporations are going to choose what everybody reads is kind of terrifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea that there are thousands. I mean, IBPA, we have 4,100 publisher members right now. And I love that. I think that's really exciting that there's so many people making good books. And yeah. what's cool is that consumers don't pay much. Well, it's cool and it's problematic. Consumers don't pay a lot of attention to who published a book. Right. Right. So on the one hand, that's great because it's like they're not being snobby about it. And they're like, if the book is great, they'll read the book. And that's why like platforms like Bookie Call are really cool because it's pretty democratic, right? Like you put your book on there and, you know, people decide whether they want to date the book based on if it it resonates with them or not. Um, and, And I love that we do a lot of those sort of marketing programs to level the playing field. Um, at the same time, the problem with that is that people aren't recognizing that the majority of the books that are hitting the bestseller lists that are being promoted are, um, it's sort of a pay to play situation in, in our world. I mean, like even, I remember the first time I learned that like the, the, the stuff in the supermarket on the supermarket shelves mm-hmm. is actually, they're paying for that space. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Right. I thought it was just, you know, I, I was naive. I just yeah. thought like, well, you know, that someone made the editorial choice that this, you know, cereal is right. better than the options. And so they right. put that cereal on the shelf. But no, that cereal company is paying for the space on the shelf in a lot right. of grocery stores. And that was shocking to me. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the more transparent, at least, I mean, I, I don't, can't do anything about the grocery stores, but in publishing, at least, if we can be transparent about who has access, who are the voices that are getting heard, I think we can expand that because I think people do want to hear more voices. And ultimately, I think it's really empowering and exciting that we can, you know, kind of on both sides, right? Like we can listen to the sort of primary sources from the past and we can also, you know, um, amplify voices today yeah yeah so many questions yeah (laughs) i mean so much to talk about i mean first off i mean i love this this uh quote that you have you know about the messenger matters and of course you're saying our story matters i think you know one of the first questions we would normally ask would be how did that affect your life and it's very obvious i mean i i think without putting words in your mouth I think you probably consider yourself a historian, at least maybe a a revolutionary historian. You want to either make sure that people are hearing the full story and not just what's been filtered is sort of what we got out of what you were saying, but also how did that affect your life in the role that you play? So in this specific IBPA role, I'm wondering, like, how does that parlay over? Like, I, I know you were sort of alluding to that now, but how is it that you can make uh, you know, those that might be underrepresented or how can you talk to uh, an independent publisher and say, listen, I want to make sure. And again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how exactly do you make sure that you're giving a voice to everybody for those that want to have a voice? 
because you have a pretty influential role. And, and I think maybe along with that, um, you know, a, a part two to this, and you can merge these two questions. Do you, Lee, separate sort of your personal life, your personal opinion versus your professional one? Like, how does that ultimately seep over into your executive role at IBPA? Sure. Thanks. Um, I feel like a, IBPA started 35, almost 40 years ago with this idea that there were a dozen publishers in Southern California, all of whom wanted to go and kind of present their books to the trade, to librarians and to bookstores at the big show that happened in New York at that time. Um, but doing a trade show is super, super expensive. And so rather than, um, and, and they, they, so they pooled their resources and they sent one person as a representative with all of their books. And that idea became what was the Publishers Marketing Association and ultimately the Independent Book Publishers Association with the idea that that kind of cooperative marketing approach could level the playing field and could create access to things that otherwise would be unattainable um, in the industry. So like a great example is the cover of Publishers Weekly. Um, to, to get the cover of Publishers Weekly to put an ad on the cover costs like twelve dollars or $14,000 if you're just a publisher going directly to Publishers Weekly. Mm -hmm. But we do uh, twice a year, we get the cover and we put 12 books on it. Um, and, you know, we have it designed and it, it's pretty cool. And it's sort of like a independent publisher announcement issue. Um, and our publishers are able to do it for like $950. So it's like, we're creating access and making, making things more accessible and more affordable because, um, it shouldn't just be the, you know, the, the, the lead titles the of one. the corporate publishers that get access. Yeah, um, and I, I think that that's cool about Bookie Call as well, that it's pretty low cost to get a book in there yep. and, um, and get access. And then it becomes a more democratic process about like, all right, is your book amazing? You know, will it, will it resonate with readers? You know, you still need all that, other, all that other stuff, but a lot of our programs are sort of about like, well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do a lot of education to make sure that the books are amazing. We're going to do a lot of advocacy to make sure that books are judged on the quality of the book and not on who published it. Um, and then we're going to try to create opportunities and to, for tools for success. We call them like, you know, ways that ways that you can get your books heard. And I guess like for me, I, I was really surprised in terms of the history of it. Like when I when I learned that Sappho, who was this rock star, famous poet from you know antiquity, um, that Sappho wrote, Sappho was an epic a poem, right? She wrote poets. Yeah, she wrote poems. She was a poet. And she was super, super famous for doing so. And she was famous for a bunch of reasons, one of which was that she wrote about her love for other women. And because of that, her poems were sort of systematically destroyed and, you know, the, the, the written down version, mm -hmm. versions of them um, for, for centuries. But some of her poems have survived, including one that's pretty amazing where she talks about how the most beautiful thing on the dark earth is, isn't a, a fleet of uh, warships or uh, infantry or soldiers. It's um, the face of the woman she loves, Anactoria flashing radiant. And that poem changed our world because everybody, all the poets before Sappho had said that uh, the most beautiful thing on the most important thing, the most powerful thing was a sort of a, a display of male aggression, 
right? They were right. all guys and right. they were like, the most beautiful thing is an army, you know, yeah. a fleet of warships. And Sappho was saying, no, the most beautiful thing is the face of the person I love. And it was this woman, Anactoria. And that idea really resonated with people. And so and it traveled down through the centuries. And, and so when 800 years ago in France, when they wrote Sleeping Beauty, what was, what, what broke the evil spell? It was the kiss of true love. I mean, like all those Disney movies that we all know so well, um, you know, where the most powerful thing in the world is true love. It all goes back to Sappho's love for Anactoria. And even though it, that's been separated out in our culture and we don't really know that connection anymore, like making that connection is really exciting because it's like, it really impacts us today. Yeah. And I feel like giving us that kind of insight and act and, and um, that, that insight is really empowering uh, because it's like, wow, I, I didn't know that. And, and I kept, my mind kept getting blown and I kept saying, no way, no way yeah. they were gay. And that's how the title came about. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, in, in terms of how that works into my day job, I, I feel like I, I'm not out to convince the world that I'm right and they're wrong about history. I just want to like put out my voice and, yeah, and, sure. and share, share the stories that I've found and let people decide for themselves. And IPA is a nonprofit. We're a big, we're a big tent, yeah, right? Yeah. I don't have to agree with everybody. Nobody else has to agree with me. It's just, I feel like we, we've gotten to a place in our culture where it's like, if I don't agree with somebody else, then I can't be in the same space as them. And that's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, we should be able to coexist and, you know, yeah. you, you can believe different things than I believe about history and it can be okay. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we got to get back to that and yeah. that would be healthy. I mean, you know, hate speech is something else. Like yeah. Yeah. If, if somebody is publishing just, absolute like you know in, in, incendiary you know go out and do terrible things to other people because of who they are or, yeah. or what their religion is like that's terrible and i don't think that yeah. we should say i mean it's different like first amendment versus free speech you know versus hate speech like i i do think it's great to have a first amendment and i'm yeah. world with that but also that's different than the idea of an association that wants to create safe space for people to feel like they're supported in their publishing journeys. Yeah. And I told you, Brant, I told you, I've been trying to share this with him for a long time, <laughs> Lee, and I don't know. So, you know, I come out of this and I think it, it has me thinking two different things in two different directions. So first and foremost, you know, I, I, I was watching, uh, there's a new documentary on Netflix that's, that's talking about uh, women in the adult film industry and porn, right. And how, uh, there is so little representation from the director's position or the producer's position that is basically the people in charge of the narrative and why this is becoming so important for them is that with only one perspective being pushed forward this entire time, uh, something like 40% of kids' sex education now comes from watching online porn. Mm. And so if the narrative is not the truth, if there is only this male dominated, you know, demeaning thing of what they think women want, that that's their only experience. If they have zero sexual experience, they come into this, into this space and it's dangerous and it's just not real. It's not true. And so the underrepresentation of their voices, um, 
the, the, the messenger matters. It's, it's, they need to, to frame stories in a way that's centered around a healthy relationship, not the, the opposite. Um, which brings me to, you know, in Florida here, we're dealing with this whole don't say gay law. And now it's, it's, it's basically taking away the opportunity to tell the truth to kids at a certain age or younger, and they can't acknowledge that they come from a same-sex family or anything like this at all, which is, as you can imagine, is incredibly damaging to these kids to make them feel like they're, they're doing something wrong or that their lives aren't normal in some ways. Just that, that narrative is such a, uh, suppressive, awful narrative that they now have to uh, uh, live by or face repercussions from the government. Um, I come back to the messenger matters where we, the, the, the proponents, the ones who are saying, hey, listen, this is unacceptable. We are not going to stand for this. As you can see, has little effect on things passing or becoming reality. Um, so I come to this point of the messenger truly matters. The larger your platform, the louder your voice, the more people you can affect, the more that responsibility is for you to stand up and say something. Because until we reach a certain stature, until we have somebody who has enough reach that says this is unacceptable, um, it's going to take millions of small voices to reach that loudness, to change the narrative. What, what is your advice, Lee, to people who, I mean, I, we're all doing our part. We're all saying things that need to be said, but, but we're not being heard. So, so what is your advice of someone who has not just lived this, but now written about it? And, and what, is, what is it that we can be doing more than what we're already doing? Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Okay, so I'm my favorite, uh, my favorite person from history that I didn't know much about before I started doing my research on the book is Fired Rustin, who was this openly gay black man um, in the civil rights movement. And he was actually the one that taught Martin Luther King Jr. about the principles of nonviolent protest. And in fact, organized that famous March on Washington when Martin Luther King Jr. made that, made his you know, amazing I Have a Dream speech. And um, Bayard had this incredible quote where he talked about, he was asked in the 1980s, you know, does he have any advice for other, you know, black gay activists? And um, he said, I think the most important thing I have to say is that they should try to build coalitions of people for the elimination of all injustice. Because if we want to do with, away with the injustice to gays, it will not be done because we get rid of the injustice to gays. It will be done because we are forwarding the effort for the elimination of injustice to all. And we will win the rights for gays or blacks or Hispanics or women within the context of whether we are fighting for all. Mm. To me, that could have been said yesterday. Yeah. Right. Like it just, it's still so true and so wise. And I think that that's, 
that's really what we can lean into, right? Yeah. Like the, the recognizing that, you know, the, 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 the stories of women and disabled people and people of color and LGBTQ people, you know, we all have to get on board together to support each other. And, you know, as outrageous as the don't say gay law is, it's, it, there's also the law about like, you know, don't talk about racism to kids. Right. Right. Like the, but it don't say woke or whatever. It, right. It's just, you know, they package, I guess it started, you know, politically, you know, um, a long time ago when they were like, you know, let's call it the clean air act and allow, you know, companies to put more pollution into the, into the skies. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, if you call it something catchy, then, yeah. you know, nobody's going to want to vote against it. And then, right. you know, because it's not about substance, it's about, it's right. about the sort of exterior stuff. So I think like we have to, you know, keep, keep fighting and keep doing the good stuff and, and recognize that it's a choir and that if we need to take a breath, other people are going to be singing those notes at the, at, when we're breathing. And then, yeah. you know, it's our turn to sing and, yeah. and, you know, just not giving up. I mean, you know, don't, don't seed the floor because I think what we're dealing with is sort of this last gasp flailing, you know, grasp of patriarchal privilege and yeah. power and they don't want that disturbed and yeah. you know rather than thinking of like well let's just build a bigger table so more people can sit at it they're like i don't want you to take my privilege yeah you know not recognizing that well maybe nobody should have that privilege mm -hmm. or love, how can we elevate everybody to have that privilege well i think that the, the advice is so counter cultural to today's where everything is find your niche go small get it you know get super focused in that one spot and what he's saying is to do just the opposite is to make it about the larger good right i, I mean that ultimately goes against every hustle culture build your brand you know sort of narrative that's being put forth on on every social media platform on the on the planet right now is actually just the opposite go bigger don't go smaller mm -hmm. Well, it also is the idea that like your niche is my niche, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's like what, what you're fighting for, I should be behind. I should support yeah. you. Yeah. Like, because that is how social change happens. Yeah. I, I used to do this um, exercise where I would ask, uh, you know, like an auditorium full of kids in high school to, you know, stand up at, it, it, according to their names and just, just sort of get across the fact that like, you know, 20% of our, of our population are disabled, yeah. Yeah. you know, and, and, um, you know, 10% of, of kids are identifying as LGBTQ and, and, and just like little by little, just showing them just by like, okay, if your name starts with A through L, you know, stand up. Okay. Well, that's how many women there are, you know, statistically yeah. in yeah. our, in our country and like recognizing that like, you know, when you, and, and for the, you know, the few that remain sitting down, you know, the, the, the straight white, guys, if you want to be allies, you can stand up too. Yeah. And then ultimately you have almost everybody in the auditorium standing up. And I That's know there's awesome. a little bit of peer pressure at the end, but like, yeah, yeah. I love it. <laughs> but, but it's a, it's a good reminder that like, you know, if, if enough of us stand up, the, 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 all the different minorities are actually the majority. Yeah. And, you know, and, and for those of us that have the privilege of being white guys, like the three of us, yeah. like it, it, it's incumbent on us to, you know, be allies to those other people. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think that probably leads in really to the thought that we wanted to share too. And I think when we were trying to decide what would be a great corresponding thought to yours, I think in a lot of ways, this, uh, you know, uh, we're going to use a quote here from David Levithan, the, the great, you know, young adult uh, fiction author, and a lot of his characters and storylines are LGBTQ as well. He specifically focused on that. And that's really where he came to prominence. I think in a lot of ways, Lee, he's saying the same thing you're saying, but he just takes a little bit of a, a spin. And this is the quote. Thoughts that rock, number two. It would be too easy to say that I feel invisible. Instead, I feel painfully visible and entirely ignored. And I think that exercise that you were talking about doing in, in, a, in a high school gymnasium yeah. um, is sort of the same thing. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think his point, what David was saying and what you might be saying is people in a lot of ways are cognizant of the existence, but when people are choosing to ignore them or somebody's lifestyle, I think that makes it even worse. You know, if you're ignorant, that's one thing, because now it's about education. You know, it's, it's like I used to say, I, I was, I thought I was a fairly good trainer when I was working at Hard Rock. I was there for 21 years. I thought I could train just about anybody. Knowledge dump, skill building. Yes. If you choose not to then run with the information, the education, the best practices, well, then shame on you. And I think this is sort of, you know, if I could sort of interpret what he's saying is if you're aware of it and now you choose not to acknowledge or celebrate or, or as you said, be an advocate for them, well, then, you know, it's your fault. And I guess my question would be, you know, have you found maybe in the book publishing world that this is really now starting to change because, you, you know, the general public's perception is starting to change. There are more people that are, that are either coming out, they feel more comfortable with it. Certainly from book publishing, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, we see so many people writing, particularly maybe in this young adult area, this, this fiction world, uh, whether it's sports romance, gay hockey romance, like that is pretty predominant now. I think that we're starting to see more and more of that. Our good friend Sawyer Bennett, yep. she's written like 90 books or something yes. like that. And and she yes. tries, she jumps into other categories and yeah. she just goes, I just know my sweet spot. Yeah. I know what my audience wants. And more and more people are just gravitating to that. I would think, Lee, that you're probably seeing the same thing in your own industry that this is becoming a little bit more widely celebrated. And, and, and just to put a little bit of a point on it, if people are choosing not to see it or advocate or celebrate, well, then shame on them because they know better, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I love the term celebrate because I feel like uh, all, all our lives, we're told, you know, we should, you know, teach tolerance, but tolerance is a pretty pathetic goal, yeah. right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to see you bare minimum. tolerate you, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like I, I really like the idea that, you know, diversity is, is that we celebrate our differences. We don't, we don't just, you know, acknowledge them or tolerate them. Um, so I, I love the idea of, you know, aiming higher with mm -hmm. our goals in terms of like, you know, what, what we're going for. And in terms of publishing, I think that every success, you know, every financial success of, of a book that otherwise would have been in the margins helps, right? Because it makes other publishers be like, oh, well, maybe I'll take a risk on that, you know, um, in, that, in, that, in that genre or with characters that are queer or non-binary. I mean, David has done an amazing job, you know, not just as, a, as an author, but also as an editor himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and really 
helped shape whose stories are being told yeah. um, as well as telling his own. And, and I, I actually look at his career and I think, well, yeah, there's a dual career that's similar to my dual career that, you know, I, I'm hoping that on both levels as, a, as an author and as somebody working to help publishers, you know, get more access in terms of their marketing that, you know, I can help people celebrate other voices. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I maybe throw in a, a curveball question here? And I'm going to bring it back to the messenger matters. I, I'm interested in your take with Elon Musk, you know, now getting involved in Twitter. He's got 9% stake in the company. He's now on the board. You know, I think people that work for Twitter are a little bit nervous about what that might mean. Um, and, and regardless of maybe where, and I'm not even sure what his political stance is, but I, I just, I wonder if you think that he's going to perhaps make some drastic changes or, or do you have any fear that it, it's going to affect maybe underrepresented communities? Uh, you know, again, since we're talking about the medium, um, it, it, if the messenger matters and and he perhaps might be the lead of this particular medium, which in a lot of ways is it's the voice of the 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 town square. Like he's got he's got a loud voice. He's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of influence. What do you think this maybe means for society? I'm, I'm sort of taking this out of the book publishing world. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts on that? I read recently an analysis of sort of the, the social media as a, as, a, as a sphere that was saying that, and I wish I could remember who, who said it, but um, they were saying that the, the, the business model of social media is arson and that it isn't, it isn't about discourse. It isn't about you know, sharing thoughtful analysis or convincing people. It is just, it's setting fires. Yeah. yeah, and I, I have I spent a lot of time on Twitter, um, and I haven't been on Twitter in almost nine months, um, wow, because congrats. I don't I don't find thank you I don't find it a safe space. Yeah, and I, I feel like I wanted I, I feel I feel almost physically unsafe going into Twitter and yeah. making myself available in yeah. that in that space that nobody gives a. Yeah. Nobody cares at all if people are being mean to each other, right. um, if, if people aren't, I don't know. I used to think it was really important to be there and to, yeah. you know, to have a big platform and to have thousands of followers. And, um, and now I just feel like, you know, what's more important for me is, is kind of curating and, yeah. and having a safe space. So like my website is a really safe space. I don't let any comments go up that aren't, safe. I mean, I started blogging 15 years ago at my blog. I'm here. I'm queer. What the hell do I read? Because I felt like there needed to be somewhere safe online for people to find out what are the books for kids and teens that have queer characters and themes. Um, and, you know, at the time there were maybe 30 books that, that had it. And I remember there was one review of a book on Amazon and it was this very sweet book by Todd Parr called the family book. And it was like, some families look the same. And it was like a picture of four different dogs, four dogs that were all sort of similar, you know, some families look different. And it was, um, you know, a tree filled with all these different kinds of animals. And, you know, some families adopt children. And it was, you know, a row of ducks with a penguin on top of one of the ducks, mm -hmm. you know, and then you turn the page and it was like, some families have two moms or two dads. And, you know, there was a very cartoony picture of two women and two men. Um, and there was a review 
on one of the major retailers online, Amazon, why am I like? <laughs> yeah, why try to hide it? it. <laughs> yeah, really. um, but there was the review and it said, um, if you rip out the page that talks about two moms and two dads, this is a lovely book about diversity. Wow. And I just thought, oh, way to miss the point of diversity. Yeah. And, and it was so, you know, and my, I've been with my husband for almost 25 years and our daughter now is in college. But at the time I was, I read that and I was so upset because it wasn't to Amazon. It wasn't actionable. They, they do not care. Right. Um, and I thought, well, I don't want people who are interested in finding a, a book that supports their family and that represents their family to see, to see that review that just feels hateful and mean. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. you know, so I was like, all right, well, let me make a space. Let me make a safe space. And I think that we all do that in our ways. I mean, yeah. you've created this podcast to talk about ideas that inspire and motivate and, and get people excited. And I think that, you know, we all do that to a certain extent, extent because, you know, the, sometimes the public sphere is not the safest space. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, and we'll, we'll close with this thought, but, I'm, you know, I, as I'm reading this thought from David, it almost has me shifting my um, approach. So I spent a number of years uh, in the uh, sort of the anti-human trafficking space, right? I, I was the artist in residence for Not For Sale campaign, which is one of the largest anti-human trafficking groups in, in the world. And, you know, one of the things that we used to say all the time is that we have to be a voice for the voiceless. And, and that's what we our, our message was. But as I read this quote, I'm actually feeling guilty um, about saying that now, because I'm reading it as if we become the voice for the voiceless, we sort of take away their voice. <laughs> we, we should be amplifying the voice of the ignored is I think a much better approach to what this is, is that don't take away their voice and put yours in place, actually amplify the voice that's not being heard. And that's, there's a massive difference in that approach um, than just being trying to be a superhero, right? I mean, I think that that's uh, it's. I'm really feeling convicted over over that in this moment of of feeling like. I mean, we did a lot of good, but man, if we would have just amplified the voice of the ignored, maybe we could have done more. Um, mm. Because we maybe we, sometimes the superhero thing is passing the mic, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, that uh, I, I think is something that is going to make me think twice about even the work that, you know, Jim and I do a bunch of work in, in different philanthropic areas. And, and it's, you know, fortunately for us, it's because we have decent platforms and can get the word out. But, but in reality, what we need to be doing is, is letting them be the voice and us just amplifying it more than us trying to, to yeah, spear. But if you think about the, the spear, what we do now, I think even if you felt guilty for that, we make up for it now, not to pat ourselves on the back, but Lee was talking about this earlier in, in two of our four businesses, yeah. one of them being thoughts at rock here. We're very agnostic. Yeah, if you look sure. at the diversity of the guests that we've had, on, sure. we've had super conservative people. Yep. We've had super liberal people. We've had all walks of life and the, the conversation, everybody has a voice on that. Yep. And I feel equal when we're all talking. And sure. so we have a platform that is approachable to everybody sure. on that regard. But then I also think about Buki Call, since you were talking about that, Lee, again, very democratic, very agnostic. Uh, we, we sort of have the same filters that you do. We're going to make sure if a book's going in there, it's well-written, it's of quality. It's not something some jack wagon wrote yesterday, and we're just throwing something up there. But 
we've had all walks of authors and, and topics. And unless it really was pure hate speech, we're making stuff available, you know, that that's out there. And I think maybe, maybe you are giving um, the, the mic to as many people yeah. as possible. So I, I feel like you, you make up for that anyway. And even then, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I don't think you should feel guilty about no, that work. Man. I just that think it's, fantastic. I think it's, I think it's a different approach. And when, when you, when you put the thought process behind, when you amplify the voice of the ignored, you include them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that's my point is that we shouldn't, not, not that we do this, but anyone, if this is what you're trying to do, if you're trying to get the word out, don't take the person out of the conversation. Right. No, that's a good point. You know, I think that that's, especially if they're not being heard because you're, you're actually proving the point is that, well, I, I have a bigger platform. I'm more important. Yeah. I'm not, whatever that might be. So let me do this. You're doing the same thing, just in a different way of, of minimizing the, the person's voice who actually needs That's to be That's why heard. our good friend Ty Bennett says it's it's way more important to be interested than interesting. Yeah. I think if you're right, if you truly want to celebrate yeah. somebody, yeah. A lot of times, all they want to do is be seen and be heard. And so okay. I think that, that that's a great point. I love that. Um, and I think, Lee, you know, you're, you're doing this in the world that you are. Um, both, again, this is sort of my first question was both in your personal professional life. If people want to stay in touch with you or learn a little bit more about you or just about the IBPA, where can we send them? Absolutely. So um, online, for, uh, for me, it's leewind.org. Um, I think that's sort of a, a inside joke about the fact that you know I am so mission driven. It's not it's not making money being yeah. an author. <laughs> you personally yeah. are nonprofit. That's yes, right. I, I do feel that way. Yes. Um, but and, and then in terms of the Independent Book Publishers Association, um, we have a pretty funny uh, online uh, URL. It's IBPA, the initials for Independent Book Publishers Association hyphen online dot org. Um, which is incredibly intuitive, but you can also just search it on Google. Yes, yes. And, it'll uh, be in the show, in the show notes. notes my, yes. my email will be there, Lee at ibpa-online.org. It just rolls off your tongue. <laughs> yes, so easily. Totally. I'll tell you what's going to be really funny for us is to look at the show notes because we have somebody on our staff that that uh, does a lot of the research and Lee did some name dropping of some it. poets and authors yes. and she is going to be educated. Busy. <laughs> that that thing is going to be perhaps the longest show notes we've ever had. And I love it. It's good. Well, listen, brother, we are incredibly thankful that you spent some time with us. You know, we love you and the work that you do. Um, just uh, thank you for, for sharing with us. This is honestly has been one of my favorite episodes and the, the couple hundred that we've, uh, that You're we've sort of done. So, oh, probably uh, because of Lee, not so probably much. because of Lee, right. not, not you. I understand. It's I'm in fine. spite of you that this was great. I feel uh, sane anyway. But, but thank you for just uh, honestly. Um, sharing from your heart, being a voice of reason. Yeah. Uh, I think that's uh, uh, desperately needed in these times. And so th- thank you for spending that time with us. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for letting it really be a conversation where we all kind of learn stuff. And I think yeah. that that's the best kind. I that's love right. it. It's great. All fantastic. right, brother. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Rock, Rock on. on. Thanks. Hey, rock stars. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe so you don't ever miss an episode. Yeah, and if you're interested in having Brant or me or both of us speak at your event, whether as a webinar for a virtual event or in person as a conference keynote, contact us directly at thoughtsthatrock.com. Until next time, rock rock on. on!
You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.